Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump administration likes Saudi Arabia and hates Iran. We'll think through the implications of stoking the Saudi-Iran rivalry. New leadership is coming to Colombia. We'll find out how elections could affect Colombia's peace process. And Spike Lee's new film got a standing ovation. Film contributor Milos Stalik fills us in on the latest from the Cannes International Film Fest. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. One thing Presidents Trump and Obama have in common is they both think the U.S.-Saudi rivalry is driven by ancient hatreds. The Middle East is going through a transformation that will play out for a generation, rooted in conflicts that date back millennia. For decades, Iran has fueled the fires of sectarian conflict and terror. In their New York Times op-ed piece called Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Modern Hatreds, Nader Hashemi and Danny Postel argue against ancient hatreds narratives. They are the authors of Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Danny Postel is here with me. He is Assistant Director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies Program at Northwestern. Good to see you, Danny. Thanks for having me, Jerome. How do you wipe away some of the verbiage that these countries actually do throw at each other? Uh, the Saudis will come at you and say, these people are heretics, they are non-believers, they are, uh, they are wrong about Islam, and, and they, they really talk a big verbiage game when it comes to the sectarian conflict. Yeah, there's um, what you might call a war of narratives um, or a rhetorical war between the two leading powers in the Middle East today, Iran uh, and Saudi Arabia, um, that has become increasingly framed in sectarian terms over the last several years. And that's really what uh, Nader Hashemi and I are exploring in uh, our book and in this New York New New York Times piece is why has there been a spike in this rhetoric? The religious differences between the Sunni and Shia branches of Islam are not new. They go back centuries. But what is different is the increasing um, polarization of the region's politics along sectarian lines. Why are sectarian identities now becoming the fault lines along which the region's politics are forming? This is a very recent phenomenon and it's on the rise. And so the question we ask is why now? And we argue in, in, in essence that it's about politics, not religion. The theological debates haven't changed. The religious positions haven't changed. But the politics of the region are becoming increasingly volatile and so you see an up, upping of the ante of the religious discourse of sectarian hatred. Saudi Arabia looks insecure about itself at times. The whole Arab Spring really heightened 
how the, they just look panicked about uh, their future and they really are reacting to a situation they think threatens them. Right. All of the dictatorships in the region, um, the axis of autocracy, as some call it, were um, freaked out about the mass mobilization, popular uprisings, and the demands from below for social change, dignity, democratic rights. Um, this, of course, represented a, a threat to all of uh, the authoritarian regimes in the region. But the Saudis in particular mobilized a huge um, counter-revolution or pushback against uh, these mobilizations in the region. And they did so in specifically sectarian terms. Uh, we have a chapter in the book by Madawi al-Rashid, a leading scholar of Saudi Arabia, where she talks about how the Saudi regime responded with um, a real spike in messaging, anti-Shia messaging, that these uprisings in the region aren't about democratic rights or the demands for more accountable government. They're about the Iranians and the Shia crescent coming to destabilize our way of life, our religious tradition. This, um, Madawi al-Rashid argues, was actually a scapegoating scare tactic that's very common to authoritarian regimes. But the problem is that it actually took hold and had resonance um, across large swaths of particularly the Sunni Arab world because of this increasingly fractured, sectarianized political landscape in the region. And, I mean, the outcome of this was there was a lot of warmongering against Iran. And uh, the Saudi king uh, advocated cutting off the head of the snake and you know, to the U.S. president. And the inroad Barack Obama, and he decided to cut the Iran nuclear deal to basically take war off the table. That's right. So this uh, anti-Iran, this, this uh, campaign to isolate uh, and corner Iran is not new. This has been going on for several years. Actually, even before Obama, at the end of George W. Bush's second term in 2007 and 2008, there was a huge push, particularly from Israel, to uh, launch an attack, a military strike on Iran. Um, interestingly, the Bush administration um, uh, did not take the bait. They, they, they put that to the side. The Obama administration, Obama had actually campaigned on dialogue uh, with Iran and really invested a huge amount of political capital in this Iran nuclear deal, which did uh, eventually uh, get signed in 2015. The Saudis, as you say, in 2008, we know thanks to WikiLeaks ca uh, cables that WikiLeaks uh, uh, exposed that the Saudis were talking about uh, uh, cutting off the head of the snake and trying to urge Washington to attack Iran militarily. So you have both Israel and Saudi Arabia pushing the United States to isolate, confront, attack Iran. And then Obama, with the Iran nuclear deal, really decides to go in a different direction and at least take that particular um, path off the table. And the Saudis and the Israelis are both deeply unhappy about it. And now you have Trump cutting uh, the, the scuttling the nuclear deal. And now we're back to square one. I'm talking with Danny Postel from Northwestern, and we're discussing his op-ed in the New York Times, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Modern Hatreds. Coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about Colombia's upcoming elections. Uh, 
Well, it, well, when we take the nuclear deal out of the equation and we put into the equation um, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and a new cast of characters, uh, it, it looks like the Trump administration is uh, going to get suckered into Saudi Arabia's idea and, and they're spoiling for a fight. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say they're getting suckered into it. I think it's a convergence uh, of interests amongst the three countries. Israel, and by the way, when we say Israel is pushing for an attack on Iran, it's not the entire, I mean, there are many prominent Israeli security officials, former heads of Shin Bet, Israel's basically FBI, um, and, um, and military and intelligence officials in Israel who strongly support the Iran nuclear deal and were against the United States uh, scuttling it. So, but, but Netanyahu and, and, and the current ruling uh, uh, faction in Israel, uh, as well as the Saudi royal family, are strongly uh, in favor of attacking uh, Iran. But there are plenty of people in Washington. You just mentioned John Bolton. He's been arguing for cornering Iran and attacking it militarily for years now. Mike Pompeo uh, has a long history of uh, um, demonizing Iran and, and, and Iran hawkishness. So this is there's, – there's a homegrown, uh, very uh, belligerent faction right here in the United States that has its own anti-Iran agenda. It just happens to converge at this moment with uh, the Netanyahu and the Saudi royal family uh, arguments. Now, the Mujahideen Kulk is an interesting organization, and I wonder if you could say something about them. But we've got a clip of John Bolton speaking at, at the, a couple of conferences, and he and Rudolf Giuliani, people who are in the uh, Trump administration now, are deeply in um, in involved with the Mujahideen Kulk, and they're a quasi-cult political organization. Uh, explain who they are a little bit for people. Yeah, if you didn't know who they were and you read uh, your first article about the MEK, their initials, you would think that it was from The Onion or from the British uh, satirical newspaper Private Eye because it, you just can't make this stuff up. So the, to make a long story short, the MEK is um, a militant organization that started in Iran in the 1960s and 70s against the Shah. They were um, an armed uh, faction who actually killed an American, uh, which is how they got on the U.S. State Department's list of terrorist organizations, from which uh, which they remained on for many decades and were only recently removed. But the MEK's worldview is a bizarre amalgam of Islamism, Stalinism, and a kind of millenarian cultism. Um, and they function very much like a cult. Some call them a death cult with mass organized uh, marriages and so forth. And they had a compound in Iraq outside yes. of Iran and they were there to stoke up stuff inside Iran and then they, they had a lot of weirdness go on there. Well, they, they also fought alongside Saddam Hussein in the 1980s against Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. So they were exiled. Basically, they fought against the Shah, but they were marginalized by Khomeini's faction because they had a different idea for how the revolution should go. They were exiled into Iraq and became allies of Saddam Hussein. So here we are now. The neocons have had this bizarre love affair with the MEK and the neocons who who 
how can you b- believe that the neocons are in bed with a group that is a combination of Islamism, Stalinism, and an ally of Saddam Hussein? All the things the neocons claim to be against, but they have this marriage of convenience because they all want regime change in Iran. Keep in mind, however, that the MEK are often referred to in mainstream media as an Iranian dissident group. That's a real mischaracterization. Iranian dissidents, I know a little bit about Iranian dissidents. I did a whole book called uh, The People Reloaded about the green movement in Iran. And I've spent many years interviewing uh, Iranian opposition activists and intellectuals. The MEK have zero support or credibility inside Iran amongst dissidents, human rights activists, and opposition intellectuals. They are considered a uh, really poisonous cult that have uh, n- that don't have Iran's national interests at heart. Here is a clip of John Bolton speaking before an MEK convention. The fact is that the Tehran regime is the central problem in the Middle East. There's no fundamental difference between the Ayatollah Khamenei and President Rouhani. They're two sides of the same coin. I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. The behavior and the objectives of the regime are not going to change, and therefore the only solution is to change the regime itself. And that's, and that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. That's John Bolton in July of 2017, speaking before a MEK Mujahideen Kolk convention. And as he said, he spoke there for 10 years. Rudolph Giuliani spoke there many times. Um, and there is no question about what they all want to do there. They're, uh, they're all applauding. Yeah, but now they're in power. So now you have Bolton and Pompeo um, at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy decision-making. This uh, changes the equation considerably. The MEK are very happy right now. They've gone from being officially branded as a terrorist organization in both the United States and the UK and being this marginal freak show on the sidelines to now having the ears and the sympathies of the highest levels of um, U.S. foreign policy. And uh, this could spell disaster for uh, what happens next in the region. Do you expect to hear a lot more verbiage, uh, a lot more sectarian verbiage coming out uh, at us right now? I think everyone uh, looks back on things like the war in Yugoslavia and uh, other situations that have some similarities and they remember how you can really get caught up in all that verbiage and it tends to obscure what's really happening. That's right. Um, This is not unique to the Middle East, in other words. So in the early 1990s, as the Balkan Wars were exploding, um, the journalist Robert Kaplan wrote a book called Balkan Ghosts, which tried to explain um, the conflict in the Balkans through this prism of ancient ethnic hatreds, not religious uh, specifically, but 
ancient ethnic hatreds, and in other regions you hear ancient tribal hatreds. It's kind of variations on a theme. Well, these arguments have consequences. Bill Clinton read Balkan Ghosts. I mean, everyone did. At the time, it was a bestseller. Uh, He was being interviewed uh, in the media. Uh, all the time. And Bill Clinton uh, read the book. He actually had his staff read it. He took it very seriously. And it convinced him that nothing could be done, that basically you just had to let these people kill each other because they've hated each other for centuries, maybe a thousand years, he said in one interview. Um, He eventually changed his mind about that for interesting reasons, which is a separate discussion. But the point is, these arguments about ancient differences are very convenient to, I think, um, policymakers in the West because it helps us makes it helps us sort of detach ourselves from the crisis in the region. So you look at the Middle East today, you don't want to think that the United States has had anything to do with the explosion of sectarian violence, right? It must just be these ancient hatreds. It's this metaphysical, trans-historical force that has nothing to do with, let's say, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 or various U.S. policies or other policies uh, of Western governments uh, in the region or the policy of strongly backing Saudi Arabia right now uh, in its war of position with Iran. These U.S. policies, I'm not saying that all of the sectarianization problems in the region are to do with U.S. foreign policy, but we have a huge role. And this argument about ancient hatreds really lets us off the hook. It's a kind of um, exculpatory uh, uh, argument. The U.S. has such a deep history with Iran. Uh, what was that? The Robin Wright piece in the New York uh, New Yorker was talking about it being a bad marriage or something. Like it was a really long bad marriage. Right. And um, the International Crisis Group talks about it uh, and tries to put the U.S. into the central part of the rivalry with the term U.S.-Saudi-Iran rivalry. Yeah, the United States is is at the very core of the Iran- Saudi-Iranian rivalry. I think the International Crisis Group nailed it with that turn of phrase. And by the way, they listed this, what they call the U.S.-Saudi-Iranian rivalry, as the second most dangerous problem on planet Earth in their list of 2018 global hotspots and crises to watch right under the North Korean uh, standoff. And I think that's significant. This is We see it happening right now. I mean, the... The confrontation now um, between Iran uh, and Israel in Syria, which blew up in a small way uh, last week but could uh, get inflamed again, the the possibility of an actual direct war between Iran and Saudi Arabia is now something that people are talking about. The Middle East Institute just released a report on that. So there are all sorts of ways that this could spiral out of control. But the key thing I think about – withdrawing the United States from the Iran nuclear deal, it has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It has to do with isolating Iran and putting it in a corner where really the only options left become a military attack, some sort of violent conflict with Iran. This is really what's driving the policy of withdrawing from the nuclear deal. It's not about the specifics of the deal or the idea of Iran getting nuclear weapons. It's quite the contrary. We're going to probably hear more about what a bad player Iran is in the region, and they definitely do defend the interests of Shias and allies in the region. Bashar Assad is a particularly strong flashpoint. Can uh, 
the administration in combination with the sectarian stoking do some regional hegemony stoking and make a case. We say in this New York Times article that Iran is in fact engaged in horrific violence in the Syrian theater um, as Bashar al-Assad's number one regional ally. Of course, Russia is its number one ally on the global stage. But in the region, Iran has marshaled an enormous transnational Shia fighting force to go defend the Assad regime. We're talking about direct engagement of Iran's elite revolutionary guard corps Quds Force and Iraqi Shia militias and Shia fighters from Afghanistan and Pakistan. So Iran's uh, fingerprints are all over uh, the Syrian uh, conflict. And it, it has played a really uh, ugly role. It's also engaged in sectarian engineering with population swaps going on. This, this fuels the sense in the region amongst many Sunni Muslims that the Shia are coming here to um, – to, to, to cause more problems for us. They are not our friend. They are our enemy. So it's true that Iran is doing horrible stuff in the region. But they that is not what the Iran nuclear deal was about. John Kerry, I think, was exactly right when he said this deal is about one thing. And the idea of scrapping the deal now because it doesn't deal with all these other questions, I think, is a fig leaf. That's That's just not really what the deal was ever going to be about. If the United States is really serious about curbing uh, these kinds of bad behaviors in the region, then it ought to look more directly at a conflict it can control more directly, which is Yemen's uh, Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, because the United States is a direct partner in that war. It's U.S.-made weapons that are being dropped on Yemeni civilians, schools, hospitals, funerals, weddings. Um, the United States could do a lot to uh, to stop that conflict, or at least to uh, not support. Uh, the, the main perpetrator of these war crimes. So I'm not in any way excusing or trying to suggest that Iran is an angel in the region. Actually, Iran's role in Syria is quite, uh, is, is quite nefarious, but it's a two-way street. Danny Postel is with Northwestern University's Middle East and North Africa Studies program. You can read his editorial in the New York Times, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Modern Hatreds. His book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Thanks a lot for joining us and uh, walking us through the dangerous situation in the Middle East. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the upcoming elections in Colombia. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The first round of elections in Colombia is May 27th. The outcome could shape Colombia's ongoing peace process. Let's talk about politics and reconciliation with Adam Isaacson. He's a senior associate with the Washington Office on Latin America. Good to talk with you, Adam. Hello, Jerome. I wanted to start with the current president, Juan Manuel Santos. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for cutting this peace deal with the FARC. And the peace deal and he seem kind of like an unpopular item these days in Colombia. His his approval ratings are really low and the, the peace process seems uh, like it's not working out that great all the time. How do we understand what's happened here? 
Um, yeah, Santos's approval ratings are in, in the teens last I saw, and and that doesn't quite reflect the, the peace process. Um, the, the the peace accord that was signed at the in November of 2016, ending 52 years of war with the FARC, is it sounds like a wonderful thing, but um, it probably has the support of almost exactly 50 percent of Colombians. Um, the FARC were never all that popular a guerrilla group to begin with, and you know, actually implementing a peace accord means a lot of sacrifice. In a country that's more than three-quarters urban, it means people in the cities having to actually pay out of pocket to actually help the countryside. And that's not all that popular. And meanwhile, Colombia got hit with a financial crisis. They were very dependent on oil, and the price of oil dove, and that really hurt things. And it kind of felt to your average Colombian that President Santos was checked out. Um, the image of him too much, I'm caricaturing, was he was going around wearing a little white dove on his lapel and talking about peace, while your average Colombian, especially in the middle class, was worried about losing their job. And so that sense that he was out of touch, and part of that was because of the peace accord, um, has really taken a toll both on his popularity and that of the accord. You know, I was reading about the accord and some of the issues with it. Uh, the demobilization process for FARC fighters seems to hit some bumps in the road, and I couldn't believe that there was no plan to get <laughs> yeah. these people land in rural areas. Most of them come from rural areas, and they didn't get any land in the to the peace process, which they negotiated for two years. It's it's really strange. I mean, things. I mean, kind of went smoothly in that the FARC handed in 1.3 weapons per fighter, and they did it very promptly in a six-month process involving the UN. But then you're right, after that, there was no real arrangement set down for reintegrating all of these fighters into life in Colombia. As of last August, they've been free to roam around the country, um, but there are not good programs in place for those who want to get job training, for those who want education. But as you said, either for land. It turned out when they did a, a survey of all the people in the camps turning over their weapons that about two-thirds of, no, I'm sorry, 81% of them were from a rural area and well over two-thirds of them. What they wanted to do after turning in their weapons was to be farmers. This is what they knew. Um, which would not have required a lot of land, probably nationwide uh, the size of one Texas cattle ranch could have taken care of all of them. But there was nothing in the accord about giving land to fighters. Uh, there is stuff in the accord about giving land to landless peasants and redistributing um, some of the lands that belong to the government, but not nothing specifically for former FARC. So nothing, just about nothing has been done. Maybe a couple of hectares of, you know, about a couple hundred hectares of or acres of land have been handed out in some small projects. But for the most part, um, former FARC, a year later, have nothing to do, and they're losing them like crazy. Um, they were sort of concentrated in 26 sites around the country, sort of village-sized sites. Um, those sites now have more than well over half of those who were living there are now gone, and nobody's accounting for them. Um, and the lack of land is part of that. Um, the danger here is that a lot of those who are being lost track of are rearming. Um, when the process started, there were about 300 FARC members who said, we're not going to participate in this. We're staying, we're staying armed. That number is now at least 1,200. Yikes. Uh, that, what do those people rearm and do? Um, for the most part, they're making money through Colombia's vastly profitable illegal economy, um, through coca growing, cocaine production and transshipment, uh, illegal precious metals mining, 
or simply just extorting everybody in you know, all legal economic activity in an area that, that they control. Um, and there's a huge market for, for cocaine still both in the United States, in Brazil, and Colombia is experiencing record levels of coca production right now. So there's plenty of resources to fight over. I'm talking with Adam Isaacson, Senior Associate for the Washington Office on Latin America, about what's going on in Colombia. We've been talking about the peace process a little here, but uh, the upcoming elections are on May 27th. And I wanted to walk through... Um, some of the people involved here, because Juan Manuel Santos is stepping down, and the leading candidate is with a conservative um, center-right party that is associated with the former president, Alvaro Uribe. Tell us something about uh, Mr. Duque. Ivan Duque is not really a well-known guy in Colombia. He was in his first term as senator. Before that, he'd spent many years here in Washington working for the Inter-American Development Bank, just sort of your well-educated Bogota technocrat type. Um, as such, he you know he does not have a huge political base of his own. He is um, politically in his statements and his positions. Yeah, we, we put him just, just to the right of center. He is not a, a hardliner. But because he doesn't have a political base of his own, he is really riding on the coattails of somebody who is far to the right in, in Colombia, uh, former President Alvaro Uribe, um, whose party Duque is a senator of and whose standard bearer he now is as candidate. So you've got this, uh, Uribe, just a very quick synopsis of who he was. Um, he was president from 2002 to 2010. He was elected on a pledge to really take the fight to the guerrillas. He majorly increased the size of the armed forces. It was a time where they made a lot of gains against the guerrillas militarily. A lot of security measures improved, but so did um, measures of human rights abuse. Um, so basically, I mean, Uribe has been the number one critic of Santos's effort to uh, negotiate peace with the FARC. And it looks like he, his party is now going to be uh, taking over the presidency. Uribe cannot run again. So, so if, 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 I, if, if Ivan Duque is the winner, does that mean the peace process is going to take its lumps? The peace process is going to be in deep trouble, yes, if, if Duque is elected. Now, Duque has, unlike some people in Uribe's coalition who have said they'd rip the record to shreds, uh, Duque has said, he no, he doesn't want to kill the accord, but he, what he wants to do are things that could be deal-breakers for the demobilized FARC, um, like not allowing them to hold office until they've paid a penalty for um, crimes against humanity, which sounds reasonable, but it means they don't get to hold office probably for 10 years, um, or uh, revisiting the idea of not of, of amnestying um, past narco-trafficking, and just about all FARC raised money for their war effort with narco-trafficking, so that would send some of them to jail or even to jail in the United States if they were actually to do that. So if he wants to tear down some of the things that it took years to agree to, um, it's really it's, it, it raises the likelihood that former FARC would melt off and go back to the jungle. Uh, the other candidate, uh, Gustavo Petro, is a longtime uh, opposition figure, and he is, uh, if Ivan Duque is kind of a smooth uh, character, he's, Gustavo's kind of fiery. 
That's right. Petro is definitely a firebrand, and he's, he's, he's on the left. I wouldn't put him in the same category politically, where his political positions are, as somebody like Hugo Chavez or, or Daniel Ortega or somebody like that. He'd probably be more like Lula in Brazil, um, but probably with better anti-corruption credentials. Um, Gustavo Petro is popular in part because as a senator during the time that Uribe was president, he did the most to investigate and, and rail against and reveal um, connections between Uribe's people, uh, people in Uribe's party and his supporters, and right-wing paramilitary groups that have been killing tens of thousands of Colombians. Um, he, on the, really on the, on the basis of that popularity, he was elected mayor of Bogota, the capital, in 2013. And then it kind of, it wasn't a great time for him. Um, yeah, he had a lot of opposition from the right. Um, but on the other hand, he didn't turn out to be a really great administrator. Um, I don't think any vision of a better city got fulfilled, and he was not all that popular um, inside, uh, in Bogota during those four years. Um, so Colombians are of two minds about him. They see him as a, an anti-corruption crusader, somebody certainly with, with ideas on the left, but then uh, a rather abrasive personality at times who, who hasn't been able to really manage or build a big team. All right. Um, your description makes me think that the uh, I mean, that it'll probably go to a second round runoff election. But I think so. Ivan Duque would, would seem to be a more pleasant person to vote for. Some, the more people are going to vote for him. Yeah, polls have Duque ahead by about, it seems to be about 10 points. Um, probably not enough to make the 50% he would need to avoid a second round runoff. But every matchup I've seen has Duque ahead in that second round. You know, it's, he seems like a very uh, light on credentials candidate. Yeah, um, he, he is. And then there's concern that he would just be President Uribe's sock puppet, even if uh, his politics are so much more moderate than Uribe's. Um, and a lot of Colombians may be okay with that because uh, Uribe is remembered as somebody who put the FARC back on their heels and improved the security situation in the country. The question is whether that's something Colombia needs right now at a time when security is much less of a concern for most Colombians. Adam, Adam Isaacson is a senior associate for regional security policy at the Washington Office on Latin America. Thanks a lot for joining us and giving us a little primer on the first round of elections coming up in Colombia on May 27th. Thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with film contributor Milos Stalik. He is at the Cannes International Film Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Milo Stalek, our film contributor from Facets, is at the Cannes International Film Fest. This is Milo's 30th year at Cannes, and he's seeing all the big films. Uh, Milos, nice to talk with you. Hey, Jerome. Great to talk to you. Milos, one of the films that's getting a lot of attention is the new Spike Lee film, 
black Klansmen. There was a showing, a standing ovation. People seem to really like it. You know, it's a film that obviously is at the right moment because it's the story of Ron Stallworth based on his book. Uh, Ron Stallworth was a first African-American police officer who got hired by the Colorado Springs, an all-white Colorado Springs Police Department at the time in the 1970s. And then through a series of jobs, he went undercover as a KKK uh, member. He actually got a membership card Uh, which was sent to him by David Duke. John David Washington plays Ron the Cop, who does not appear in the scenes with the KKK. Adam Driver plays that role as his partner. So there are actually two actors playing that supposed role of Ron Stallworth. And it's a film which Spike Lee very much ties to our time because it begins and ends with Donald Trump and with Charlottesville, in which that famous speech in which he's saying that there were good people on both sides, as Spike Lee shows us the documentary footage of the car careening down the street and, of course, sadly killing this one woman. You know, so it's a film about American racism, and in, in some ways you have to separate the storyline and the incident and what the film is about from its filmmaking. And its filmmaking is very much over the top. It's really uh, directed with a sledgehammer. The acting is all okay, especially Adam Driver, who's actually very good in the role. And in some ways, his role is much heavier because he's always in situations in which he's under threat of being revealed by the KKK. The music is pretty invasive, but it's a film of its moment. All right. So Spike Lee, this is his first film in competition in many years, and people liked it. He had this uh, expletive-filled rant after the showing, it sounds like. Well, I mean, you, you know, he's seizing the moment also, I mean, because obviously he's not a Trump supporter. I mean, he refuses to even mention the president's name in public. And, of course, Americans also understand the situation of America and its legacy of racism and the KKK still being there. The actor who plays, uh, incidentally, David Duke, looks absolutely like him when you finally see the footage of David Duke. Uh, now, it's very much absolutely to the type. Uh, and also it feeds the anti-American sentiment, which is gradually developing as Europe feels more and more isolated, largely through the actions of America. Well, that film, Black Klansman, is coming to theaters in this area soon, and we will certainly see that Spike Lee film in the theaters. One of the other people who is notorious at Cannes is Lars von Trier, and his film, The House That Jack Built, is about a serial killer. It sounds uh, brutal, and I guess a lot of people walked out. Well, according to some statistics, one of the statistics said 100 people, some said that half the people left. I was present uh, walking down and saw the firemen actually in the hallway rushing up the stairs into the theater carrying a stretcher, which I presume was from somebody for whom this was too much. And uh, I think it was really too much for many. I mean, it is soaked in blood and gratuitous violence, sadistic violence, story of a serial killer who Lars von Trier says that he's exploring his wanting to be an artist in the sense of his killing women. So I was just thinking about this in a way in which Khan is really being taken to task for uh, not having an equal representation by women of how a film like this, which is being shown out of competition in a special slot, uh, with Lars von Trier not being allowed to have a press conference here, which often they don't do for films out of competition, 
how that in a way contrasts with a film which really has such a misogynistic very sadistic portrait of women. That said, a lot of young critics have declared this a masterpiece and said this doesn't bother them because they've seen enough splatter films in their lifetime, so they're inured to the kind of violence that the house that Jack built contains. Why do top actors work with this person? Uh, you know, Uma Thurman's in the film, Matt Dillon. It's got a star-studded cast. Yeah, it's Matt Dillon's first time. Uma Thurman has worked with him before. They think that he's an interesting director. I mean, he's not a simple person. He's obviously complex and obviously has psychological issues that he's trying to work out through his films, which he admits himself. It's certainly going to get them on a world stage because obviously they're going to be at the center of attention. Uh, you know, Catherine Deneuve has worked with him also. I mean, Uma Thurman. Bjork has been in a film by him. So he's able to attract talent. There's no question about Nicole Kidman was was in a film by him and then, of course, refused to work any further. It's not, not always a pleasant experience, I think, for the actors, at least for some of them who've worked with him. Nevertheless, he still commands the world stage. And he's an arch manipulator because he really was doing something to the audience which is like saying I can really get you and I can really do this to you and I can really manipulate you and I can really force you to watch this and go through this with me putting and saddling you with all of his emotional and psychological baggage that he's trying to work out onto your ears and eyes I would never go see one of his films. It's just something that I would not want to sit through, even you know, even the others. Well, I didn't sit through all of this. I, I fully admit, and I have no intention of ever going back and seeing it. I mean, for me, a film like The Antichrist, which was less violent but still had some violence, gentle mutilation, you know, is very, very hard to take, and you really feel like you are victimized by Lars von Trier and by his fantasies. But you know, for some people, it's something else because obviously it is intense. Violence is intense. All right, that's House That Jack Built by Lars von Trier. Uh, we're talking about the Cannes International Film Festival with film contributor Milo Stalek. Let's move on to some of the good films that you've been seeing, the films that seem to be top runners, and there seems to be a bunch of them that you like. There's one called uh, Lazaro Felice. Yeah, Lazaro Felice is an Italian film by Alice Rohrwacher, I think it's her sixth or seventh feature. Her most recent film before this was called The Wonders, a film which, like Lazaro Felice, which is translated here in an awkward title as Happy as Lazaro. Lazaro is the name of a character. Anyway, both films, The Wonders and uh, Lazaro Felice, are set in the countryside. The situation here is is a very extended family of 30 or so people who are living in very crowded conditions and who are working very, very hard, manual labor, uh, mostly tobacco farming, but also other crops. And they are really acting or in a situation like, which is very futile, like indentured servants. Uh, a guy comes around to add up all their totals uh, of what they produced, what it was sold for or how much they bought, how much they use, you know, how much uh, grains or whatever else is being deducted. So they're always and perennially in debt. It turns out that they are in debt to this Marquesa, uh, who is kind of an odd character. Lazaro, who becomes the central point of this film, is a very simple-minded, kind of a holy fool. He's always doing good. Everybody's taking advantage of him. No matter, it's Lazaro, go do this. Lazaro, go do that. And he always complies, is very giving. And the Marquesa, when she arrives at her estate and at her little chateau, has a son who is kind of wayward and do nothing. And so the two become friends. 
And then the film shifts for the second half to an urban environment when this is now much later. The police have come and discovered that the Marquesa, who is also called the Queen of Cigarettes because she's using the tobacco to make cigarettes, uh, is in violation not only of labor laws, of course, because she's not paying the people, but also of many other tax laws. So the people lose their land, are forced out, go to the city, are living on the margins. And so now we are back in an urban situation. And the film becomes kind of a criticism of the way that these wonderful and beautiful people, especially Lazaro, who kind of is mystical and visionary, have been marginalized and pushed to the margins. All right. So you think that maybe Happy as Lazaro, Lazaro Felice, is one of the films that could be in contention at the end in Cannes? There's a woman director. There's a lot of women on the jury this year. So there's a possibility that a woman might win. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a question of whether or not the jury goes for the beauty, and because the film is visually very, very beautiful, and whether they go for the beauty and simplicity of a film and the heart and humanity of a film, or whether they are swayed by, uh, you know, things that really come at them with much more force and are much bigger. So far, certainly, the critics have really been very supportive of this, and so have audiences, because the film really tugs at you. It's reminiscent of the best of Italian cinema, like the Taviani brothers, Vittorio Paolo, one of them, Vittorio, just recently died, and also another filmmaker who was in the post-realist phase of Italian filmmaking, the great filmmaker Ermano Olmi, Tree of the Wooden Clogs, is a film that you really think about when you're watching Lazaro Felice, you know, a film that's among non-actors, very simple people, really living a life that's very connected to the earth, and very connected to tradition, and very connected to being together as a family. All right, there's another film about being together as a family, it seems, uh, Shoplifters. And this is a Japanese film, and it's about people on the margins who are surviving through scams. Yeah, the film uh, Shoplifters is by Hirokazu Koreeda, who is best known for his films Afterlife, uh, Maborosi, uh, Still Walking, a film called Nobody Knows. All of his films, in a way, are very low-key because not, there's not much action, there's not much uh, uh, plot development, and not much dramatic action created. The situation here is an extended family, sort of a family. We don't even know what all the relationships are between them, who are all living together on the margins of Japanese society, making do and making survive. And what propels the plot is, and they do scams, because the father and son, who never really admits that it's his father in the film, are shoplifters. And they're very, very clever uh, at this, of how, how they... Uh, manage to steal whatever out of stores, whatever it is that they need. And on the way home, they hear a girl crying. They find the situation that this is a very, very wonderful and beautiful girl who is probably seven or eight years old who is being abused by her parents, and they overhear the parents speaking. Neither parent wanted her as a child. And so as we watch this family make do, survive, find humor and connection and humanity with each other, eventually the state comes down on them in that last half, and then again we get the contradiction of what it takes to survive on the margins, what it takes to survive as human beings versus the state and versus the things that people are forced to do uh, for survival. It's a film that really captured the hearts of a lot of people here, and it probably will get some award here. 
All right, that's Shoplifters, the Japanese film at the Cannes International Film Fest. And um, Milos, I noticed the Han Solo film premiered and Cannes finally got some sizzle with a Chewbacca walking down the main drag. I intentionally went as far away as possible because, <laughs> because it was a mad zoo. You know, I mean, you have incredible lines to get into everything, and you never know which line is which. And so just seeing all of the people in their black ties and long dresses, and it was kind of cool uh, by the evening, and so packed, packed, packed circus. So I ran away. I, I admit being chicken and having missed it. I saw the Chewbacca actor got to be in a tuxedo while somebody else played the Chewbacca and walked down the street. That was very clever. Well, certainly Star Wars has imagination. The film went over well, and people are saying that it's going to be the beginning, God help us, of another franchise, which is now going to start the Star Wars saga years before. A prequel, which becomes a sequel upon sequel upon sequel. So no matter what, we're inventing a new math here in terms of what's possible in sequels and in using the same plot line or the same situation to create franchises upon franchises. Hollywood is saved again. Exactly. Film contributor Milos Stalik at the Cannes International Film Fest. Nice talking with you. Great to be here, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to hear an interview that Milos did with Sebastian Lilio before he left for Cannes. And Lilio, you might remember, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film this year for the film A Fantastic Woman. His new film is called Disobedience. It stars Rachel McAdams. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Did you know you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast on the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. And thank you to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.